the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we look at the central bank's review of mortgage rules. I'll ask Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times who will benefit from the changes and will they make any difference to the current trend of rising house prices. In the second part of the show we'll have a new feature for you called the business of sport. Michael O'Keefe, chief executive of Taneo PSG, join me as co-host of this new segment and we'll interview Porrick Duffy, director general of the GEA and go through some of the business implications of the main stories from the world of sport. We hope you like it and we plan to make it a regular once a month item. Before all of that, don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. But we're going to start with uh, mortgages and the Central Bank of Ireland had its annual review of its macro prudential rules, which are the rules around which banks can lend to borrowers uh, for residential and buy-to-let mortgages. And joining me in studio is Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, you were, well, you've written a column uh, for the Irish Times this morning about the implication of uh, the, the change, a slight tweak uh, by the Central Bank of Ireland to the rules. Maybe just uh, take us through, the, through that tweak. Yeah, big change in the rules last year, of course, this time last year when uh, the rules were eased for first-time buyers. But this year, the changes were were less significant. Uh, the main one that the Central Bank announced uh, was a new way of uh, regulating the number of loans that can be granted by banks over the 3.5 times mm. income limit. So I suppose you should just maybe walk people through what, sure. the, what the rules are. They were introduced in February 2015. Yeah. Uh, and as of today, uh, for first time, buyers, they require a 10% deposit, regardless of the price of the house. Yeah. And for second and subsequent buyers, they need a 20% deposit. Yeah, there is correct. a small uh, bit of headroom for exemptions for the banks in yeah. terms of second and subsequent buyers, but not much, uh, essentially. That's in great. addition to applying those criteria, that criteria, and the banks also have to be mindful of incomes. And so you go into a bank, you make your application, you can only get a loan up to three and a half times the level of your income or joint income. Yeah. Uh, again, there are some exemptions and it was a 20% uh, exemption that existed uh, up, up until yesterday, but that's changed. Yeah, I mean, an economist would say that the 3.5 time rule is by far the, the more important of the, mm. of the two. But what's changed is, as you say, previously... 20% of loans could be granted by banks ab- above... Mm. So that's the one in five loans, limit. essentially, yeah. could be outside of the, the income yeah. limit. But now they've they've split the tracks, if you like, between first-time buyers and what they call second and subsequent buyers, so that uh, for first-time buyers, 20% remains the figure, so 20% of loans... One in five, okay. One in five can be granted uh, above the 3.5 times limit. And for second and subsequent, it's one it's, in ten. It's, one, it's, down to one, it's down to 10% or one in ten. The rationale by the central bank being, look, first-time buyers tend to be generally younger, so they have a longer, longer, longer time to repay their mortgage. And secondly, that because they're at the start of their careers, they're more likely to be in a position where they, they can increase, uh, they'll increase their incomes and, and thus be able to make repayments. I, I think the central bank probably is also looking at the higher end of the housing market, where second, you know, people, trader uppers would be looking at. Uh, and wants to see, doesn't want to see a repeat of what we saw in 05, 06, mm. 07, where more valuable houses really shot up in prices and left people in an awful uh, in an awful fix when the market collapsed and, and in huge negative equity. Yeah. Now, we have house prices running at uh, 12% annually in terms of uh, growth. Yeah. They're running at 12% or a little more, in fact. Sure. Um, it doesn't seem sustainable and, and the property market is running away from a lot of young people, particularly yeah. in Dublin. Absolutely. So is this going to make any difference to house prices? 
Um, is it going to calm the market? I don't think so. Um, and the central bank itself has said that it doesn't have a target for house prices, that house prices aren't its, aren't its mm. bag, if you What's like. What's the goal it's, behind the macroprudential what, what, rules? The, the macroprudential rules are to stop the banks from giving out loans that, that, are, that are too uh, too big to borrowers and that, that run risks when the economy turns down or if the economy turns down. So they're essentially to protect time. the banks, to make sure yeah. that they don't go on another credit fueled binge. That's like it. They're, they're part of what... up to 07, 08. Yeah, they're part of what the bank calls its macroprudential regulations. In other words, making sure the banks act prudently and responsibly and also making sure their borrowers act prudently and responsibly. So we don't go back to the days where people were granted loans at, you know, vast multiples of their income and on the basis of a pay increase mm. they'd been promised in two years' time or whatever, as was now, to happen before the boom. I seem to recall when the rules were first introduced in early 2015 that the central bank said, it, it reckoned that, uh, you know, an outcome of introducing these rules mm. would that be that prices probably would uh, stabilise, uh, yeah. if not soften. Yeah, I think, uh, and interestingly, Philip Lane, uh, the governor of the central bank, had some interesting things to say at the press conference about mm. house prices. He said, look, the economy has been very strong over the last couple of years. Incomes have started to rise. GDP is rising. The number of people at work is rising. And all these things are are supporting house prices and pushing house prices higher. So the assessment of the central bank, and it came at this, if you like, from a number of different directions in terms of its studies, its assessment, similar to one done by the SRI recently, is that, look, broadly, house prices are are, are in line with where the economy is at the moment. Uh, now, that's obviously not much consolation to people, as you say, who are finding it hard to get on the ladder, but that that is their assessment. But, you know, while prices aren't a... Uh, direct target of the central bank policy, there's no doubt that when you start to put these limits on, it is going to get to the point at some stage where affordability is going to become an issue for more borrowers. And you would think that that will eventually be a factor that will slow the market. Now, Philip Lane pointed to two other things that could do that. One is, you know, we're facing economic risks over the next few years. We we always are, but Brexit is is a big one. could lead to a hit to empl- hit to employment and growth. Could lead to a hit to incomes. That's going to feed through the housing Trump market. And all his madness in America as and well. All the usual uncertainties that we face, as you say, Trump, uh, tax harmonisation in Europe, maybe something we haven't foreseen. But the economy has been growing now pretty steadily for four or five years. So, uh, on the law of averages, you know, it, it, we we may run into uh, at least a slowdown sooner uh, sooner rather than later. And of course, the other factor is that government policy is now hugely focused on increasing the supply of housing. Now, we know that's a really difficult thing to fix mm. and they've had limited limited gains so far. But if they do start to have an impact, there's going to be more houses coming on the market and more houses is going to mean, you know, a slowdown in the rate of price growth or, or, or maybe falling prices. Mm. What about rising interest rates? I mean, at some point, yeah. the ECB is going to have to increase its interest rates. They're, you know, practically zero at the minute. And we've yeah. seen in the UK and the US an increase in interest rates, sure. still modest but nonetheless, interest rates, they have to go up at some point. They do, absolutely. There's no doubt that interest rates can only go one way from here. I mean, by definition, they're at 0% at the moment. The only question is when they're going to start going up. Um, and, you know, nobody expects interest rates to rise over the next six months or, 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 or a year, probably, uh, despite signs of a pickup in the eurozone economy. But when you're taking out a mortgage, you're not taking it out for one year, you're taking it out for 20, mm. 25, 30 years. And we are at abnormally low interest rates at the moment, so... Are they going to go up at the end of next year? Are they going to go up in 2019? Are they going to go up in 2020? They're certainly they're certainly going to start heading upwards. And as we've seen from the US um, in, in, in the last six, nine months, once they start to go up, 
you know, they don't just go up once, yeah, they go up two sure. or three, three times. One of the interesting statistics in your column, Matt, and there were many, of course, Cliff, but one <laughs> of the interesting ones was that in uh, 2006, I suppose, when the, the property market was at its peak in Ireland, and um, there were mortgage drawdowns of 28 billion euro, 28 billion euro. And this year, the figure might go as high as 7 billion euro, only a quarter of that. Sure. And, and, you know, it may not reach 7 billion. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But it's, it, is, uh, it is on the increase. There's no question sure. about that. So a lot of people might say, what's all the fuss about, you know, a credit driven boom? And it also strikes me as odd that when the central bank first introduced these rules in early 2015, they were criticised by politicians in particular for, you know, making it really difficult for first-time buyers to get on the property ladder and for interfering in the market at a time when there was, uh, you know, damn all uh, supply. And now they've been, they've since been, they tweaked the rules then a year later, more or less, 18 months later, and they got it in the neck from politicians for interfering in the market and uh, screwing it up. And now they're going to be criticised even further uh, as a result of making it diff- more difficult for second and subsequent buyers uh, to purchase homes. Yeah, I think when you when you're the central bank, you can't win. Is the uh, yeah. is the is is the bottom line of that argument? Uh, what about this credit credit? I mean, if yeah. it's only seven billion drawdowns compared to twenty eight billion at the peak. What's what's to worry about? We're certainly not in a credit driven housing bubble at the moment. There's no question of that. Uh, the big increase in prices has been driven by fundamentally by a lack of supply. So that that is the factor that has driven prices up. So. You know, you could argue this. It's, it's a semantic argument, I suppose. But traditionally, bubbles, uh, housing bubbles, are, are are due to excessive credit. We're in something that might be more accu- accurately described as a housing squeeze. Uh, there's no supply on the market. There are a significant number of buyers, and and that's the thing that is pushing prices up. So I think what the central bank is looking at is it's looking back to, say, two thousand and one, two, three, uh, a period you know, a, a period when housing prices had been increasing significantly based on strong economic growth. And that was then followed by the credit frenzy that, that you were talking about earlier. And they're saying, look, we're, we're in the period at the moment where the increases have been pretty much driven by economic fundamentals, if you like. But we can't go to stage two again. We can't let the banks and borrowers go to the stage where money's being thrown out again. Prices are inflated out of all recognition or uh, all... Uh, all linked to economic fundamentals and, and we leave ourselves mm. exposed again. So, that, so that's what's going on, really. The bank is saying, look, our job is to control credit. Our job is to make sure the banks uh, lend prudently. Uh, clearly, it's not the central bank's job to ensure there's housing supply. One, one of the interesting things, I think, when you look at the growth or, or you compare the figures in 06 with the figures now, uh, there has been some recovery in first-time buyers over the last few years. Now, obviously, the total is still well below what it was back in 06, uh, but there has been certainly a, re- a recovery in, um, in first-time buyers' demand. But mortgage drawdowns by second and subsequent borrowers remain very low, so they would have been about $8 billion in 2006 in the first yeah. three quarters and, and only $2 billion now. And the buy-to-let market... The switcher market, so the huge. equity release market have, have pretty much collapsed. Yeah. And of course, we're not factoring in cash buyers who are now 50 no. to 60% probably of, of all house sales at the minute, which yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah, when that's that's when you count in the big institutional funds that are coming into the market. If you just yeah. look at new buyers, it's probably around, it's probably around, sorry, normal people yeah. buying houses, probably around a third, private okay. buyers, I suppose you might say. How long before we get demand and supply into mm. equilibrium? Good question. Um all the forecasts 
in the last while, uh, the ESRI, most of the brokers have been that price growth is going to slow, uh, but it's going to keep it's going to keep going. Well, ESRI said twenty percent growth, house price growth over three years. Over three Central years. Central Bank puts it at fifteen percent. Still, still yeah. a lot. So it's still it's still a lot. Although, given that we're looking at twelve point eight percent for the last year alone, it is a slowdown from the current rate of growth. Now, I suppose Philip Lane did strike a note of caution and say, um, "Look, there are downside risks here." But in terms yeah. of demand and supply, we're, we're still three, we still must be three or four years off that if, if you assume the economy is going to keep growing, if demand is still there. The supply has been so constrained over the last few years and it just takes time to get that back on stream, to get land zoned, developed, built sure. through the whole process. Um, okay, so and we're, still, we're still in a, in a deeply dysfunctional market and, and, yeah. and the key thing that's, that's driving that is, is, is the lack of supply. And a lot of first-time buyers trying to figure out whether now is the right time to mm. go into the market or not. Should they hold off? Should they wait for more supply, uh, mm. et cetera, et cetera. A lot, uh, you know, a lot of moving parts in, in this. Yeah. What would you say? Some? It's a difficult call. I, I, I think if people can afford a property and, and they find something that suits them, uh, I don't think prices are don't wait. hugely out of line at the moment and there is a prospect they're going to rise further. The likelihood, certainly, they're going to rise further in, in the short term. So, uh, you know, people shouldn't be uh, taking on mortgage commitments they're, they're not comfortable with, but if they find something they feel they can afford uh, and, and it suits them, it's hard, to, it's hard to come up with an argument to wait. All right, Cliff Taylor, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. We'll return with the first episode of The Business of Sport, a new segment of this podcast that will run once a month. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, this week, we're introducing a new feature into the podcast called The Business of Sport. Our plan is to run the segment every four weeks and I'll be joined for these features by Michael O'Keefe, Chief Executive of the Leading Communications and Advisory Group, Teneo PSG. Michael, you're very welcome. Thank you, Kieran. I should say, I should begin by filling people in on your stellar sporting credentials, <laughs> Michael. Uh, in soccer, among other things, uh, you played in the League of Ireland for Shamrock Rovers and I think I'm right in saying you were capped uh, for Ireland at underage level and in the GAA you lined out for the Dublin senior footballers we'll gloss over the fact that they were fallow periods uh, yeah, didn't win in the history in four years the, the, the darkest era in the history of uh, both those great teams <laughs> but anyway uh, and you've also acted as an advisor to a number of sports bodies and teams over the years uh, in your role as a public relations executive and we're going to start now with a business of sports wrap yes. where we're going to look at a few uh, sort of key business stories uh, of recent times. One of them is uh, the ATP Tennis Tour confirming the sale of exclusive tennis rights to Amazon from 2019. Uh, they're taking over these rights from Sky, who are paying about £8 million a year, but Amazon has agreed to pay £10 million uh, per annum over five years. Uh, 37 terms will be broadcast on the internet via Amazon Prime, which is a competitor, yeah. if you like, to Netflix. Yeah. And Amazon already in the sports rights uh, arena because it already broadcast 10 National Football League, uh, American football games uh, on Thursday nights uh, this season at least. So what's the import of this, Mick? Yeah, so this is part of a wider trend of, of, of 
the diversification of, of, of broadcast rights for sports. So we've seen the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, the, the, mm. the big four coming into sports. So the traditional Sky Sports, BT Sport model um, seems, to be, seems to be changing. So we've seen Twitter take NFL uh, highlights and obviously back, I think one of the first ones was YouTube going into Indian cricket. So in, in Ireland as well, Pundit Arena actually broadcast or streamed the Barbarians-Tonga game. So this is just part of a, of a, of a, of a new trend in terms of new players in the market. It's all about how sports fans are consuming media differently and I suppose that's been reflected now in some of the rights deals that have been done. There is a, a, a revenue share model here where instead of the big check up front there's maybe a smaller check but also a revenue share on the on the online advertising piece too. Yeah. It doesn't sound to me to be a great necessarily a great thing for consumers because it's more fragmentation and it means you need to have more subscriptions you're probably end, going to end up paying more to, if you if you want to watch all the various sports, uh, no, and, and 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 I think you're absolutely spot on. I think some of the numbers have been quite low. I think Twitter's numbers in the states have been very low in terms of their their mm. their reach for the NFL highlights. Um, I think what we're seeing is the likes of Amazon having a, a dipping the toes in the water and, and, and having a look around. It's a pretty low risk bid by them, I think, to take the UK and Irish rights for tennis. Um, and yes, you're right. I, I think there is complaints already about multiple platforms for for sport. You throw in the fact that you might need a a Netflix or an Amazon or something else um, subscription. All of a sudden, your 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 ability to watch sport is costing you more and more. Yeah, sure. And of course, they made a big splash by taking on the Grand Tour, which was the old Top Gear, Jeremy Clarkson, and so forth. Anyway, we'll see how that plays out. Now, unfortunately, we were both there. I think uh, <laughs> in Aviva when Denmark beat Ireland by five goals to one in the second leg of the World Cup playoff. So there'll be no Russia 2018 no. for uh, the Green Army. And unfortunately, no revenue flowing to the FEI as a result of that. What, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, we're not the only ones crying into our vodka, I think, next next summer. So, you know, at least worth $8 million to the FAI. Mm. And now they don't budget for it in their numbers, but it is a huge fill-up to them, particularly as they've had a number of, of financial woes, let's say. Yeah, over, well, they have a huge debt decade. that they have to pay off. Um, and th- this would have been a big, big boost to them. So a minimum, we reckon, of about 10 when you throw in sponsorship mm. bonus What would deals. the players have gotten out of that? Well, the last time around, the, the deal was broken by Kieran Medler from B. EDO and the, the the word was it was around two million split between the players in a, in a player's pot. So something along those those lines. Um, I'm not sure if that is indexed to where they where they where they land where they get to. A they surely would have got more from the world. Cup, I, 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 I think they get yeah, and they, they would have probably got more this time around. Although it, it's not substantially more than, than, than qualifying for the Euros I think the further you go I think the overall mm. price fund for Russia is $400 million which is well up on, on the last World Cup and it means that effectively for the next 12 to 18 months we don't really have a serious competitive game to play well, that's it, and I, I don't think we play competitively again till 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 twenty nineteen. We so, have this new Nations Cup, European Nations Cup, but nobody's quite sure how that's going to. Yeah, so there's work a big out. there's a big gap that's going to need to be filled next year. And I suppose one of the things of, of qualification is you get full houses or close to full houses at Glory Friendlies in the in in the game in the games leading up to the tournament. And also, there's a big boost for the whole spin off around retailers and jersey sales, and obviously the, the likes of Diageo and others who are involved in 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 sponsoring the FAI will now divert their budgets away from the promotion yeah. of their soccer sponsorship and into something else yeah but if we think the numbers are big for the FEI and for Ireland uh, I was struck by the numbers that are being touted in relation to Italy they've failed to qualify for the first time since 1958 losing out to Sweden in a playoff and it's been suggested that it's going to cost the country somewhere between 500 and 600 million euros and in fact the former uh, Italian soccer federation president Franco Carrara 
uh, says that the figure could be as high as 1 billion euro, which is quite staggering. Well, there might, might be a slight bit of Italian exaggeration in, in those numbers, but they, they reckon that over That's 500 a lot of million is, is a lot of money for them to lose out on. I think it's psychologically as well. It's a massive blow for the Italians. But also spare a thought for Fox, who Fox Sports and the States, who paid $400 million okay. for the rights. Um, and now the States didn't qualify. They've no one, no, one, no one to show on TV. Yeah, sure. Okay, let's uh, quickly move to the Premier League. PCP Capital Partners, headed by British businesswoman Amanda Staveley has made a formal bid of £300 million for Newcastle United, which is owned, of course, by the lovable Mike Ashley, uh, the head of uh, JD Sports, a man who owns, uh, effectively controls Heaton's, the retailer in in Ireland. He put the club up for sale in October, um, and after some uh, ropey years as owner, I think he'd had it up for sale before, but he didn't manage to get the price he was looking for. He paid £134 million for the club at the time he bought it, and he's poured about £130 million into it in terms of interest-free loans. Stavely helped broker the purchase of Manchester City by um, the Dubai Sheik and Stavely is believed to be backed by investors from the Gulf, the Far East and the United States. Yeah, so again, you know, this huge interest from investors in, in Premier League clubs, um, I think last year there was a third of Premier League clubs were approached by outside invest- investors. What this means at the moment is we have quite a diverse controlling parties in, in, in soccer clubs in the UK. So five of them are now owned by US US owners, I think four from the Middle East and, and Far East, uh, and then three by, by European owners. So, mm. um, yeah, seeing no a lot of guys... Lo- no love loss, obviously, between Newcastle fans and Mike Ashley. No, and, and he's, 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 he's out to cut out with a, with a profit too. So he's going to sell the club for, for twice what he bought it for. Now, he has invested in it over the years too. But, um, and he's taken a lot of flack yeah, personally. Well, I, I, I think what it shows is that like, you know, these people don't invest willy-nilly and there obviously is money in Premier League clubs. So the attendances remain robust. Clearly there, there is. But I mean, Newcastle, as uh, we saw at the weekend, you know, their performances on the pitch are pretty ropey. Um, some weeks up, some weeks down. They could well get relegated this season. They could and it's a risk and it's sport. And if you go down, obviously... Newly promoted. The, the, the TV money alone is something like forty million for being in the Premier League. So if you're taking it, you know, if you get involved in a sports club, you're taking a gamble on performance too. Yeah. When is some of this money going to trickle down into the League of Ireland? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> right. I'm not Paul Daniels, is you? <laughs> right, okay. All right, we we'll leave it there. That's the first uh, business of sport wrap. Now, I'm delighted to say that we're joined in studio for this first uh, Business of Sport podcast by Pork Duffy, Director General of the GAA. Uh, back in October, Pork announced his intention to retire as the GAA's Director General on March 31st of next year. He took over the position from Liam Mulvihill in February 2008 and has served four GAA presidents in that time. And obviously, it's been a period of growth for the GAA, but also Pork, I guess it's been a period of uh, challenges for the GAA as well, because it also coincided with a, a severe economic crash in Ireland. Maybe you can just outline to us the sort of uh, the way the GA has changed over the past decade. So what was it like in, in 2008 and how does it compare with now in terms of income, maybe uh, membership, attendances, all of that kind of thing? Yeah, you're right, Kieran. I mean, uh, my timing could have been better. I took over on the 1st of February 2008 and uh, in the months preceding taking office, uh, we did a lot of work on a, on a strategic plan. And we launched a strategic plan which was based, I suppose, on an economy that at the time looked looked quite good and the revenues appeared buoyant and the future looked very bright in terms of investment for us and so on. And that changed very quickly. So, I mean, we were forced, I suppose, to, like everybody else, to cut our cloth in terms Mm. of what what our revenues were. In general terms, I'd have to say we probably came out of the recession better than one would have expected because uh, attendances were affected somewhat, but, you know, not, not... it probably affected the commercial more than, than the attendance side. I mean, clearly, in terms of sponsorship and so on, that became more difficult in terms of holding sponsors, mm. getting the same fees from sponsors we were getting before. That was more challenging. But in general terms, I would say the GA came out of the recession reasonably well. Now, clearly, we didn't have the same amount of money to invest in facilities as we would like to have had. 
But generally, it, it, we, we did okay, and we've come out on the other side now at the moment. We're in a, like a fairly strong position at the present. So what was the level of income, let's say, in 08, and the level of sponsorship in 08, and how does it compare to now? Well, the figures now are easier to remember. I'm not exactly sure it was in 2008. Now we're, we're, we're in over 60 million. That's on, on the stadium, of course, another 20 beyond that. So I suppose you could say 80 million at a national level. Uh, I think that's probably... I'm not exactly sure of the, of the increase, but it's, it's a lot healthier than it was in, in 2008. But then you'd expect that in terms of the inflation and increased admission charges and so on. And the commercial thing is much, much better than it was back in 2008, 2009. Yeah, and your, your, your latest figures show you're up about 12% year in year, I think. But just from your own personal perspective, I yeah. suppose, just an, an interesting one is, you know, you were uh, over 10 years as headmaster yeah. in St. McCartan's, I think. Yeah. Um, and then moved into the GA, obviously, yeah. in 2008. Um you know, not coming from a financial or commercial background, yeah. what challenges did you have personally, do you think, in terms of getting to grips with, 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 with that side of the business? Well, I was very lucky in one way. that we, There were some very good people in Crow Park already. At that time, Dermot Power was the, the commercial director and uh, Peter McKenna, as still is, was in charge of the stadium. Now Peter holds both posts. We have a great working relationship. So obviously in the early years, I relied very much on, on Dermot first and then Peter, and still do on Peter, uh, in terms of handling the business side. But we have a really good working relationship. So actually, I found that easier than, than people might expect. And... Uh, you know, I think a lot of the skills you have in terms of running a school is, in a sense, a commercial business with, with very little revenue, but a lot of costs. So some, some of the, the you, you learned, I suppose, the importance of keeping costs down and so on. So now that wasn't as challenging as you might think. And something that's been in the, the papers a lot in the last couple of weeks has been around Rugby World Cup 2023. Yeah. And obviously you were a big supporter of that and, and, and part of that process, but obviously a bit of disappointment there that, that we weren't successful. But one of the key tenants of that was the redevelopment of, of GA Stadia around yeah, the country and I suppose yeah. now that that is gone where does the GA sit in terms of investment in infrastructure? Yeah, I was on the oversight bid committee and I really regret that the bid wasn't successful first of all because of the people who I worked with on that I mean the IRFU put in a tremendous effort a very professional bid uh, it's disappointing that it, it didn't succeed yeah from our point of view it had a lot of positives number one we supported the bid because it was right for Ireland and there was absolutely no question about the GA's genuine support for that our, our uh, stadium would have benefited I mean I think the government had put aside a figure of around 35 million euro to develop facilities and to be honest some of our stadia probably needed more redevelopment than three or four rugby stadia being used so we would have benefited significantly from that we also would have benefited from, benefited from the rental of our ground so you know, all told, I suppose, you were probably looking at a loss of about, probably an investment of about €40 million. Euro. And uh, that won't be, well, clearly the, the, the rental is gone because the, yeah. the competition hasn't been held. Uh, and I, we we're constantly, I suppose, working with government to try and get funding for stadia development. And they, they have been very good to us. And Parker Key was the most recent example. But there's a gap there now mm-hmm. and uh, it won't be easily met. But we just have to keep going and, and try and, we, we realise that there are, is work to be done. We have probably too many stadia in some places but they're, they're, yeah. they're there you have to live with them you can't knock them down and so we have to try and improve them as best we can within the resources that we have and What about Parky Cueve uh, Porg yeah. because uh, there was a bit of criticism in the evaluation report uh, in relation to Parky Cueve it hadn't been completed I think at that stage and obviously a lot of people out there are saying what was the point in redeveloping Parky Cueve let's say when you have a big stadium like Thurless just up the road yeah. uh, and there are other stadia in Munster as well that can house large capacities yeah. the Gaelic grounds in Limerick uh, Killarney and yeah. so forth what was the point in spending all of that money on a redeveloped Parky Cueve? Well the first Cueve? thing I would say is we had a stadium there at the moment uh, the old stadium which had a capacity of over 40,000 people it wasn't safe it, it, the facilities were dreadful facilities for players were, were embarrassing so you, you couldn't continue in that vein so you had a choice either you knock the stadium down and just sell it off or you rebuild now Cork is our 
the third city behind Dublin and Belfast. It has more clubs in it than any uh, other unit in the country. It has a very, very strong GA support base there. Mm. And there isn't an awful lot of love, though, in Cork for Parky Quay because of access issues and, and so forth. And, and even some of the Cork fans who've been to the stadium since have been critical of some of the facilities. I haven't heard the criticism of the facilities. Uh, I think that, that's probably unfair. I think the, it's a first-class stadium. I think by any standards, it's a first-class mm-hmm. stadium. I've been there. I've seen them at first hand, and that, that would surprise me. I think the facilities are excellent. Um, clearly, there's still work to be done. I mean, I'm not quite sure what the Rugby World Cup evaluation criticisms were. None of us are quite clear what they were. There was some work still to be done. For example, we had to put in big screens and a few small things, but the stadium is fantastic, and as I think it is a, it's, it's one of the best stadiums in the country. Mm. And Caseman Park, will that, will that be uh, rebuilt in the site that's been... It's a challenge. I mean, we're awaiting at the moment a decision on planning permission. We expect to have that in January. Um, there's enough that the work has gone into preparing that submission because clearly it lost out the last time. It got planning but lost on a judicial review. Every issue that was raised in the judicial review has been addressed and addressed. Every I has been dotted, T has been crossed. I think it will get planning. But that's obviously a decision for the planners. There's always the risk again of somebody seeking a judicial review. But I do believe in the long term it will be built. Uh, it'll be a stadium with capacity. And on that site rather than a greenfield oh, on, site. On, on, on that site. That's the, on that site. So it's, it's a challenge and it's expensive for us. But again, given the support for G and Ulster, we, we don't have a stadium that meets the needs of, 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 of modern society and our, our current supporters. But I think, I think it will be built. Paulie, just one of the one of the major developments over your tenure was yeah. the diversification of broadcast deals yeah. and so yeah. forth. And yeah. um, you know, obviously, it's a very changing landscape at the moment. And yeah. at the moment, you have RT, obviously Sky, Air Sport of um, yeah. League and, and and the Club Championship now as well. And Teach Car, obviously, been a big supporter yeah. of, of GA yeah. over the last number of years. Um, yeah, at, at the time, you, you received a, a, personally as well, probably un, unfairly, some direct criticism around the Sky deal. Um, where where do you think that is at the moment, and and has it been a success in in your view? Well, I think it has. Then I suppose he would say that, wouldn't he? Now, I think first of all, for most, the first thing is we have got RT have thirty one championship games. Uh, they're still our main broadcast partner. That's all all free to air, and I think that's a very good number of games to have, to have free to air. Uh, Sky have a smaller number of games. Um, I think it's four, fourteen uh, exclusive. I think it's actually a very good balance for us. Uh, it's really important for us that we have a strong terrestrial partner, be that RTE, TV3, or whatever it is. That's, that's number one. But I think, let me maybe explain the background to the Sky. There were two things at play at the time. For us, uh, it was essential. We had a huge demand from people overseas to see our games. To see our games. I, I attended several sessions of the, the Global Irish Forum in, in, in uh, Dublin Castle, and this came up constantly from people from abroad. We want access to see the game. So we had, that was a two-pronged thing. We developed GA Go, which has been hugely successful in terms of providing games through online. And Sky gives us an opportunity to make our games available to in Britain, where the diaspora numbers are, are greater than any, any place else. So I think this worked really, really well. But I'd say also there's a financial benefit to it, not so much in terms of, not just the financial benefit, but in creating some level of competition for, for GA rights. We're in a difficult situation in the sense that I think rugby and soccer benefit from a number of things. They benefit from the fact that rights are now uh, negotiated on, on, a, on a European base yeah. or a worldwide base. That benefits them. And also they have the big tournaments like Rugby World Cup, yeah. World Cup, UEFA Championships and so on. We don't have those. So we have to maximise our rights as best we can. So I think that the Sky deal has enabled us, number one, to provide a very good service to the GA community in, in Britain, which is a very large one, and it has also created a level of competition within Ireland for, for media rights. But clearly it has generated a lot of uh, antipathy among a certain cohort of GA members, and the fact is, it might only be a small number of games that are exclusive yeah. to Sky, but yeah. if it's your team playing in that game, 
you know, a lot of people get annoyed about the fact that they can't see it on, on free tear. And I, I just wonder as well what the long term goal is of Sky in terms of these uh, broadcast is, because we've seen in the UK and with other yeah. sports that they come in small and they, they build it over time and then they become the, the dominant uh, broadcast partner. Do you, do you the, see a day when that will happen here? No, that, that won't happen in the GA because we've made it very clear that we're committed to r- maintaining a terrestrial partner as, as the key broadcaster. That will not change. Irrespective of what Sky would want to do, that won't change. And in fairness, they haven't indicated to us that that's their goal, but that will not change from, from our point of view. But we're, might they get more rights? Um, at the moment, I think th- as the balance we have at the moment is perfect. Uh, let me say this. Uh, they, we have 31 on, on, on championship games in RT. We have the other 14 in Sky. I wouldn't like to see us broadcasting any more games. I think we, we, attendances are huge for us, not just from a revenue point of view, but from a promotional point of view. We want people to come to the games. So I, I, my personal opinion is that we would not increase the number of, of live uh, t- championship games, TV games. So I, I don't see any change in the, in the current model, to be honest. Yeah, but you just mentioned the, the gate receipts there. I think according to the last account, it's about 50%. Yeah. And then commercial, which is sponsorship and broadcast, but another That's 30. Right. One one interesting part as well, which some people might know, is the, the difference between the stadium um, and and the GA itself. Could you just give us a bit of um, background on, on how the stadium is run? Like, obviously, it's a, it's a conferencing centre. It's a place where That's music right. concerts yeah. are held. And how that is separated out from the GA, I suppose, as a wholly owned yeah. subsidiary. It, it has a separate board, obviously, with, with GA membership on it. Uh, and the president of the GA serves as, as president of, of, of as chairman of the board. It, it runs the stadium, as you say, uh, exclusively. And uh, the goal at the end of the day is that you know, it, it generates revenue for the GA. That is the goal. And it, at the end of the year, it, it pays a dividend back to the GA. That dividend in recent years has been around uh, seven million. That's a goal. That's Peter's challenge as chief executive of, yeah. of the stadium is to generate revenue for the GA. And it's, it's a model that's worked very, very successfully. Uh, so it does operate separately, but with a strong GA. Uh, representation on, on the board but we also have four ex- external directors who bring a lot of different skills to us that maybe GA people wouldn't have I'm in the board the president's in the board sure. we, have, we have four external directors who I think from a wide range of experience and you have there. the hotel as well don't you across the road That's which right. is operated by the Doyle Group correct is that separate from the stadium or is that part of the stadium's operation? no it's part of the stadium's operations yeah, right. And so that feeds into the feeds into the, in the stadium into yeah. seven million. Yeah. 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 Maybe part of obviously this is a, a great time for Dublin uh, GA for football. Uh, at least, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> myself, and Mick would say here, here, and all that. But uh, obviously, it, it it has put a lot of focus on uh, the size and scale and financial yeah. power that lies behind Dublin GA at at the minute. They have a huge uh, sponsorship deal currently with AIG, which yeah. uh, I think Michael might have been involved uh, in, yeah. in some way in negotiating yeah. and. Um, you know, the, the reports would suggest it's about €800,000 uh, a year. That's a lot of money. They have other commercial deals yeah. uh, as well, and they get some central funding um, from the GAA. Uh, but then you have the smaller counties that might only be getting, let's say, yeah. 20 or, or 30 grand. How do, you, how do you square the circle on that? And what, what are you thinking in terms of funding and how you might even the playing field going forward? Yeah, really, the answer is you can't because Dublin have resources and have access to resources that nobody else has. I mean, you take the, you, you give a good example, take Dublin, what they can bring in in terms of the AG deal and so on. And compare that with elite Which from, is great for the GA, isn't it? To bring a multinational GA, yeah, sponsor yeah, yeah. of the quality of AIG yeah. into the into the fold. Yeah. Look, I've said this, I think in, in terms of the, of the competition structure, it's impossible to expect a, a lead from or a Longford or a Carlo or, or even a Monon or a Cavan, perhaps, with counties with smaller populations to compete with a Dublin. I think we need to probably in the long term look at our competition structure. I know we're, we're changing it next year again, but this issue of, of a second tier or a third tier, I mean, in hurling we operate through five different tiers of competition. In football, there's a, a resistance to change and we still have just one. They all play in the same leagues, they all play in the same championship and so on. 
and they can't compete. And the answer, the, the thing is that if Dublin do their business correctly, run their affairs well as they do, then they'll always be extremely competitive. I don't believe they will dominate. I mean, I'd make the point that in the last number of years, while well, they've won four out of five all Ireland's, they won three, three finals by one point, one of them after a replay, another one by three points. So the dominance isn't as strong, perhaps, as people sometimes sure. think. What about this uh, notion of splitting them into, let's say, North South? Colin O'Rourke has been, has been an advocate for that. Oh, I'm totally opposed to that. I mean, for, for me, more in the sense of, of the G is, is Dublin, Hill 16 and all of that. And I think if, if, you, if you try to do that, you absolutely be self-destruction. I mean, there's nothing to match the enthusiasm that they, that they bring to the Hill, they bring to GA Games, the colour and, 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 and glamour and so on. I would be absolutely totally opposed to that. The idea of a, a North Dublin, South Dublin, Fingal team, it won't fly. There's no appetite for it in the GA, even among... I know Colin O'Rourke pushes the idea constantly, but I don't hear anybody else arguing for it in, within the GA. <coughs> you, you mentioned earlier on about um, the diaspora and, and bringing you know, yeah. uh, TV and, and access to games yeah. and GA Go and things have been very successful. Yeah. But like at this time of the year, we've seen... Yeah, the Fexco Asian Games, yeah. the AJ Hurling Classic, you have PwC guys heading off to All Stars heading off to Singapore, and obviously the international rules with AirGrid and so on. Um, what's the, the benefit of these? Interna- like, is it a diaspora thing, or is it to promote the GA externally, or, or is it a balance of, of, of both in, in your view? Well, I think first and foremost is the diaspora thing. We, we don't have aspirations to conquer the world or spread our games worldwide. That's, that's not going to happen. But I, I was in Australia recently for the first test in Adelaide, and to see the enthusiasm, and there's not a big Irish population in Adelaide, but to see the enthusiasm of the Irish people there when, it, when the team comes out, it absolutely is fantastic. It was, it was the same story in Perth. So I, I think that they love to see the teams coming out they love to see the top players it's not about it's not about uh, trying to say we're going to spread the G all over the world everyone's going to start playing hurling and killing football that's not going to happen essentially it's for the diaspora I mean you, you mentioned Asia there's a very, we have a very strong presence yeah. in GA presence in terms of clubs in Asia and so on they're going to Singapore as you say next week but they want us out the, the invitation comes from them we don't go unless we're invited out there so it's really to give people a abroad a chance to promote the game letting, and letting some of their friends and so on I mean, a lot of the people who play our games abroad are not Irish they're friends of the Irish who moved out there yeah, or yeah. are working out there and so on so it's just it's, they're nice things but they're not essential to what the GA is about one, one, one kind of big question I suppose I, I have in, in sitting where, where you've been for the yeah. last decade or so is around the kind of eternal debate around like the GA's uniqueness as a sporting cultural organisation and the volunteerism and the amateur status yeah. and balancing that with a hard-nosed commercial aspect as well. Like, how how do you balance? Like, that's a very fine line that you have to tread as, as an organisation. No, it's very difficult. I mean, there are certain sponsorships, for example, that we we, we don't take because our, our members wouldn't accept it. We don't we don't take any betting. Don't do alcohol national yeah. level and so on. It, it, it is a fine line. At the same time, there's a reality that the people within the GA realise that if we want to develop the organisation, we need funding to do that. And you're trying to, trying to achieve that balance all the time. And we're held to account. I mean, you, you mentioned the Sky Deal earlier on. It happens around your sponsorships and so on. We have to be very careful what we do and what we don't do. So it, it is tricky. And I mean, there's a hardcore within the association who are very keen on, on the volunteer part of it and, and the amateur part of it and so on. Having said that, Within the same membership, there's also, you know, we have plenty of breaches of our own rules in terms of payments to managers, coaches and so on. Mm. It's a very hard thing to keep right. And that, that that's perhaps is the biggest challenge of all. It's not around that commercial balance. It's around the fact that within the organisation, we have an industry around people, you know, paying coaches, paying yeah. managers and so on. That is almost impossible. We found it impossible uh, to, to deal with. Yeah. And actually on that point, Parik, do you see a day coming down the road, maybe some years, uh, yeah. some years down the road, where players are, inter-county players are being paid to play GAA? I don't think the county players will be paid because number number one, Mick mentioned, go back to Mick's earlier question, the ethos of the association is the association won't, won't stand for that. It, it would rather have, I'd say, a much smaller organisation, 
a much smaller commercial operation than pay players. It, 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 will, it will not pay players. What we need to do in terms of players is we need to, and we have done, improved considerably in recent years, and in fairness, a lot of it with, with the help of the GPA, we need to look after our players better. Uh, player welfare is hugely important. We have to put resources and time and money into that and, and keep our game amateur. Now, I know we're running against the tide because worldwide there's very few elite sports that are played okay. at, at an amateur level, but the ethos of the association is no, we're going to remain amateur. Okay. We're, we're, we're nearly there, just on, on, on lines on the sand. Crow Park, naming rights... No, won't happen. Okay. <laughs> and finally, Porrick, um, you are stepping down next March. Yeah. What's next for Porrick Duffy? No plans at all, Kieran. I mean, I did a little bit of a break for a few months, and I'll see. Uh, you know, I'm not going to sit around and do nothing, but I said I've absolutely no plans at the moment. Right. Okay. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure to have you on board. Uh, this, uh, you're breaking new ground as the first interviewee on this new segment of uh, Inside Business. And we're, uh, Boric Duffy, we're delighted to have you on board. Thank you very, yeah, much, thanks very thank much. Okay. That's thank it for you. this week from Inside Business. I want to thank my guests, Cliff Taylor and Porrick Duffy. I'd also like to thank Michael O'Keefe for co hosting the business sports segment of the podcast and his colleague at Teneo PSG, Kieran McSweeney, for his help in researching the sports features. Declan Connan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.